and welcome to the Shameless Talks podcast. I'm your host, Julia Delorentis Johnson, and our topic this time around is sex. There are a lot of ways to experience sex, sexuality, and gender. It's self-expression. It's wrapped up in body image, agency, politics, fun, and work. And it's personal to you, and you get to decide how you feel about it. For me, I've always been uh, very sex positive, and I tried my hardest to buck shame from my sexual experiences and ideals, and I, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. Uh, no shame, not for me. No shame for anyone, no matter what. Shameless. And it's not always easy, of course, because in Canada, we are brought up with a Christian colonial value system, which is that if you're not a white hetero dude, you're probably having too much sex is basically the gist of it, um, which is a real bummer in uh, so many ways. So, you know, no thanks. I thought to myself, like I said, no shame allowed. As I got a bit older, I started to realize that my idea of having good sex and my idea of having a good life seemed to follow pretty similar rules. Be honest with myself about what I want and why I want it. Am I doing this for validation? exploration, titillation, to leave judgment out of it. You don't know that person's whole story, after all. To uh, find a good balance between empowerment and vulnerability. To be kind always. And to have so much fun that you don't care if you look good in the pictures. On this podcast, we have three person who have their own shameless stories about sex and sexuality, and they're all very different. We've got um, Andy Villanueva from Project Slut, which is a collective who challenged the slut shaming at their high school and helped abolish the dress code there. We have sex educator Kaylee Trace from Halifax, who talks about navigating sex as a disabled person, why sexual shame is uh, such a downer, and she also offers her best sex advice. And we have Cinnamon Maxine from San Francisco was a fat, black, queer porn performer, stripper and burlesque performer, weighs in on the importance of fair, unfetishized representation in skin flicks. Uh, it's a really good one. So here we go. First up, we have Andy Villanueva from Project Slut. Project Slut was born out of the dress code rules that the members of Project Slut thought unfairly targeted and policed how the girls at their school chose to dress. And so they spoke up and organized. Just a note to consider maybe skipping ahead if this kind of stuff is a sensitive issue for you. Here's Andy. You and your fellow Project Slut coordinators uh, began Project Slut to address a sexually charged bullying that was happening in your high school in Toronto. So can you just start by telling me a little bit about what kind of um, sexually charged bullying was occurring in your school? We actually began the, the project because of confrontations that were happening between staff and students. Um, staff were making comments like, um, what you're wearing is lingerie, you should be ashamed. If my mother was in this room, she would be mad at me for letting you be here. Um, and what were you got what were the clothes people were wearing? They were wearing um back then there was these Aritzia tank tops. Uh-huh. So they were wearing Aritzia tank tops. And what was scandalous about them like or this, that they thought was scandalous about them? Just, um it, it it was just like a tank top and it had like a little cup underneath the breast, mm-hmm. but it wasn't um it wasn't accentuating anything. Right. Like a bustier kind of look? Yeah. Okay, I see. Um but then they were or they would wear, like, a sheer blouse over a tank top. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's where the comment was, my mother would be ashamed of you being here because you're wearing a translucent blouse over a shirt that you're wearing underneath, which okay. didn't make sense. Right. Uh, so they were, you know, staff were making these comments, and in response, students were uh, looking at the, the female students who were victims of these confrontations and making assumptions that they were sluts and that they had every right to be rude or disrespectful or aggressive. Uh, in fact, one of the girls who um, had one of these things happen to them, uh, she was repetitively being slapped in the ass in the hallway 
And then I, she was a friend of mine. I went to her and I said, why don't you tell the teacher? And she said, no, because I'm violating the dress code. And so that's when we said, you know, we have, um, we talk so much about uh, sexual violence and consent or when we try to talk about these things or, but in reality, we, we allow rape culture. We, we allowed um, these things to exist in the classroom because we justify teachers abusing young people or disempowering young people based on their own morals. Right. And yeah. they can hide behind the well as part of the dress code charter. Yes. And so then we started exploring the issue of dress codes, which extended. It wasn't just about young women. It, it's also about racialized young men mm-hmm. and young women. So what were some of the points in the dress code as uh, it used to be? A, in our school, it was uh, do not cover up your bosoms. Uh-huh. And uh, another, like, obviously female presenting body parts, like not your tummy, yeah. uh, your butt, uh, but none of them were targeted towards males, and actually, you can't sub- you can't pull- make a certain group of people follow a certain rule set of rules. Yeah. That's against the charter. So, were there no like you can't wear your baseball hat or you can't have low pants? Like they didn't there- have any low riding. Nothing. Rule. For, so there were no rules for men. Um, they had a hat rule, mm-hmm. okay, which was disproportionately policed to young men of color. Yeah. Okay. So separate from the way that the teachers were treating the students, how were the students treating the other students? I mean, you mentioned like one of your friends got her butt slapped in the hall, but how did what the teachers were saying or enforcing influence how the students reacted to it? What would end up happening is that the messaging was that there were some girls that you respected and there was girls that you didn't respect. Based on what they were wearing. Based on what they were wearing or based on their sex life mm-hmm. or based on what you thought about them in general. And so there's a culture uh, about whether there's this word called thought, that hoe over there. Mm-hmm. And so there's, yeah, so there's like the good girls, mm-hmm. like bays, the wifeys, and then there's the thoughts. Okay. And so there's a lot of like calling certain girls that, and there's a lot of classification and I think those teacher confrontations really reinforced that. Right. Okay. So then tell me about how Project Slut started. So we started, I mean, we have a lot of personal reasons why we started as well, not just like what was happening in the school climate. In in my English class, we were talking about what happened to Amanda Todd, Mm -hmm. and people were saying... Can you just remind those just what happened to Amanda Todd? So Amanda Todd was a girl who uh, a lot of series of horrible things happened to her. Uh, A nude photo, someone online manipulated her into sending a photograph and then very horrendously, like, circulated that photograph. And And shamed her, right? Yeah, and shamed her. Unfortunately. And then she killed herself. herself. And then post um, when she killed herself, people were still saying, well, why do we care about her? She's a whore. She was asking for it. Or... Why, why are we growing sympathy? Like, there's genuine, genuine people we should be caring about when they kill themselves, and she's not worthy of this mm-hmm. attention. Um, or it's not bullying because she's an idiot. And so even in the classroom, we were justifying um, that, you know, these horrible things that were happening. And then someone brought up, brought up an incident that happened in the school mm-hmm. in terms of the dress code. And that's when I realized, you know, these things are connected. Mm-hmm. Um, because of a girl like Amanda Todd or a girl like me, because I experienced a lot of like sexual bullying at my previous school that I left. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to come and talk to my staff and they, uh, based on what I was wearing, thought I was wrong, mm-hmm. that would just make it so much harder for me to be able to report or to feel like I deserve to be in that classroom or that I deserve to be worthy of respect. And I think that just further harms, like, young women or survivors of violence. And so that's sort of, like, that's where the urgency came out of, that, like, that's not okay, that doesn't mean anything, that she's still a human being. And so are all these other girls that we call sluts, Mm -hmm. like, that we automatically categorize like a subhuman, basically. And so that's why we came up with the name Project Slut, because we were kind of, claiming mm-hmm. um, 
that we're addressing these this group of girls and we're doing it shamelessly. Right. And so you felt like the teachers, the people that are supposed to be on your side that helped you, you felt like you had no support system that they just, is that what you're trying to say? Um, no, I feel like it could, when teachers like police you based on what you're wearing, that just further emphasizes that you're alone and that you're dirty Mm -hmm. or that, you know, you're wrong for being there or you're wrong for your having your body or that you're slutty or, and I think that that's harmful and that that's not what the issue is. Okay. So then Project Select decided to specifically address the dress code in your school. Yes. So how did you go about doing that? How did it go? Um, so we started putting up posters mm-hmm. and then got taken down. What did the posters say? It was just like um, the word slut shaming and then a definition of what slut shaming was. And then uh, another person said, believe it or not, what I wear has nothing to do with you. And then uh, just like posters that kind of educated or challenged our ideas on attire, our ideas on sexuality, mm-hmm. and they were taken down. And I was talking to staff about it, and a lot of people were like, no, that's not right. We should have dress codes because of this and this and this and this. So what were the reasons? Um, in the real world, you can't dress like that mm-hmm. at work. You know, we're actually protecting young women mm-hmm. when we tell them not to dress like that because you don't know yet, mm-hmm. but... You, people won't respect you. And that's when I realized, you know, they're actually doing it in a very kind, quote-unquote. They're not doing it maliciously. They're actually doing it because they think that's how they're protecting mm-hmm. people. Okay, so as this progressed, how did you get to speak with the teachers about changing the dress code? Um, so, yeah, so we were continuously told, you can't do this. We started filming students, so we filmed a bunch of um, female students. We asked them, um, if there is no dress code, how your outfit choices change? Because it's just also this idea that if there's no dress code, girls are going to come to school naked. Yeah. Okay. And so we asked them, and I think only one girl said that she would wear like shorter, like shorts in the mm-hmm. summer. But I know this girl personally, and I know that she wouldn't even do that. But you know, I, that generally everybody said what I'm wearing now is what I would wear. And then we asked guys, how would your learning be impaired if there is no dress code? Or how would your learning be affected? That's what the word was. How would your learning be affected? There's no dress code. And they were like, did you mean how would their learning be affected if women at school could wear whatever they wanted? Yeah, but we didn't explicitly say women. We said, how would your learning be affected? And they said no. And then we said, how would you feel if your female peers could wear whatever they wanted? And all of them said, at least the ones we interviewed, said, well, we're not animals. Like you know, I'm more distracted in my phone. And then I think we had one guy said it just like, you know, I do look at attractive girls, but they could be dressed in a poncho. And if they're beautiful, I'm just going to look at them anyway. And so we had footage and then the principal again found out we were doing this and they said, you can't do anything in the school. And we were like, well, this is complete censorship. We're going to take it to the media. Not that the media would have talked to us at the time, or anything, and then our guidance counselor said, well, you should take this course called Social Justice and make it your summative project. And it was through that that I eventually, I think, somehow um, gender-based violence in the TDSB heard about us, and they helped us navigate that relationship. We got a staff supervisor, and then we gained a lot of staff allies. And through that, we put a lot of pressure on the principal, and then she came on board with what we were doing. Um, We spoke at a staff meeting, and we let them know who we are, what we were doing, uh, and a lot. it just just radically changed. How do you think you changed the teacher's mind to acquire more allies that were teachers? Like, what do you think it was that made them change? I think it was less of them seeing that we weren't just like teenagers with like being rebellious without a cause Mm -hmm. i think i mean when we had a meeting we the first speech was letting them know that we appreciated every little thing that they did um that they stayed after school that they gave us extensions during that they invested themselves personally and i honestly think that the staff at central tech are most like beautiful human beings (laughs) like 
generally like good people and teachers are generally good people like people most people who go to teaching are not mean people mm-hmm. right and so it was just like really just emphasizing that we recognize that and but saying like can you please recognize that some of that behavior or some of that the language that is being used is really harmful and that has long lasting effects on these individuals right okay so then how did the dress code change um they by the end of the semester they said there's no like everybody can come to school whatever they want to wear except if you're in a technical class and so what was the stipulations for a technical class like safety yeah for safety and obviously you can't come to school with a shirt that says i hate this group of people right or anything that's yeah or explicitly like that would make anybody feel unsafe Mm -hmm. okay and so what did it look like what did students wear after that happened did it change dramatically no (laughs) people wore the same thing and what do you think the effect was for the female and the male students to hear that you get to pick what you want to wear and like you know there's a kind of trust i suppose I think it, I mean, it helped women, but it also helped young men, especially in my school, because it's very racialized. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of young men of color. And part of the, why they took down the hat rule was because really young men of color were being disproportionately policed. And part of the re- justification for that was um, kids who were, we need to be able to tell who's an intruder and who's not. And so that idea in itself, once you're still policing the same kid who's in your classroom for two months and you know who he is, but you want to be able to tell who's an intruder or not, and he's a man of color, is just, again, perpetuating our fear of men of color. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so yeah, so I think that gave power to young people. And also, again, this idea of that we don't live in the real world was another thing that we brought up. You know, well, I didn't know we didn't live in the real world. I do live in the real world, and I make my own choices. And if I have to suffer the consequences for my choices, then I will. And there's a difference between school and work, um, first of all. Second of all, and there's some students, teachers that come to school in jeans and graphic T-shirts. So are we going to have a dress code protocol for teachers if this is how we're going to go about things? And then second of all, um, another argument is just like t- there's a multitude of professions that young people can go into. This idea that we're all going to go into an office setting is ridiculous. What do you and Project Slut hope uh, to happen next or in the future? Like where do you now set your sights? Um, so we talked to, well, I talked to Director Donna Kwan on the phone two weeks ago. She's the Director of Education across in the TDSB. Mm-hmm. And it looks like um, they're moving towards getting rid of dress codes. Across the yeah. province? N- or across the city, to, rather? Yeah, but except for uniform schools, but you can't wear things that are hateful or in technical classes. The same thing that Central Tech did, uh, or in the same spirit. However, they haven't done it yet, so I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so that was always our main thing. Because every school across the TDSB has different jurisdiction over their own policies, which means that they can do whatever the hell they want. So there's no sense of accountability. And so that's why our main, that's our main thing that we want done, is the TDSB to be accountable. Um, And then once that's done, is to find a way to make make it possible for reporting for young people if they do feel like they have been disempowered overall because I think um, it is very infantilizing. Is that the word? That's it. Yeah, infantilizing the, the school system in general. And we are young adults. And in and, and several different ways, we could be giving more leniency to make our own decisions. And I think that would benefit both parties. we have sex educator and author Kaylee Trace who talks to me about sex and disability, getting over shame, and that time that she remade the Blurred Lines video renamed Ask First. And it's actually really sexy and you should definitely look it up on YouTube. 
So thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so you run a, a blog called The Fucking Vax that looked like morphed into your book that you released last year, Hot, Wet, and Shaking, How I Learned to Talk About Sex. So how did you learn to talk about sex? Like, what were some of the factors leading up to you writing that book? Um, I think that maybe things become easier to talk about the more you have to engage with them. Yeah. And so having different experiences in my life that kind of forced me to engage with bodies and sexuality, so things like coming out and having an abortion um, and getting a job at a sex shop, um, all of these life events that are actually pretty normal experiences um, in terms of frequency and people having them, but that get talked about much less frequently than which they occur. Yeah. kind of made it easier for me to start talking about them because I was like, wait a minute, lots of people have gone through this. Why don't we do this all the time? So I think that maybe all of the lifetime experiences that I've been having in my recent years made it easier for me to start talking about sex with more comfort. Right. Yeah, and and one of those life experiences is um, uh, life as a disabled person, which you talk about in the book. And I've also heard you talk about the language that surrounds sex and disability, which, you know, sometimes it's the, the industry, the medical industry or, or the culture at large kind of can now to some degree accept that perhaps disabled persons do have sexually active lives, but there's still sometimes the language that surrounds it that are clinical, maybe kind of like cold words like, like sexual aid, assistive device. When, and I've heard you talk about how you just find a lot of, um, satisfaction just calling it a sex toy. Yeah, that's a, actually a really important point in my life and uh, surprisingly often a point of contention. I guess having a disabled body also makes bodies more comfortable for me to talk about because I've had to navigate a different body for most of my life yeah. and have to have had to grow quite comfortable with talking about my body with strangers, for example, as people with disabilities who have um, assisted workers or doctors often have to do. You get more used to your body being an object that you talk about with people who you aren't necessarily intimate with. Um, and so part of that for me was trying to own my body and not like using words like bowel movement and gait pattern, but rather like poop and limp. Like those are yeah. my words mm-hmm. and I want to use them. And so sex toys also became one of my words because so often in the work that I do as a sex educator working with healthcare providers, that word makes them so nervous, I think, because it's so real. And I want it to be real. Sex is real, and disabled people are real, and our sexual experiences are real. And so using real words rather than euphemisms or medical language is is really, really important to me. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it sounds like it's also something that does a great job of helping dismantle the concept of shame around yeah. sex. I mean, there's all... I, there's tons and tons of, unfortunately, lots of people uh, feel shame that are straight, white, able, cis, thin, let alone people who are not those things around sex. Totally. So uh, why, I mean, why is deconstructing shame around sex so important to what you do? Um, I guess I just find shame such a downer. <laughs> I yeah. mean, who doesn't? It is a downer. It's such a funny bag that we all carry around. It's just so heavy on everybody. Yeah. And I think maybe for me, I felt a lot of shame about my body before I knew other disabled people and before I knew other queer people. When I was trying to be, when I was trying to fit into the like mainstream hetero cis white world, um, because it's such a such a really specific look that you have to attain to fit in. And then finding alternative communities was, like, really mind-blowing for me in a period of my life because it let me realize that lots of people like lots of different bodies and you don't have to try and fit a certain rubric. Um, and I And that, for me, that discovery was really brought on by being disabled and by coming out. And I actually want for all kinds of people to experience that kind of community and self-love that doesn't require a certain kind of aesthetic. Um, so you're you're a sex educator, as well as many other things, as well author, author and all kinds of stuff. So in talking mm-hmm. and thinking about sex for such a long time, as sex edu- educator does do, what, um, I don't know, what's kind of like the highlight reel on some of the best sex advice 
you've amassed over these these years and ten thousand hours and all that? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I think. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different potential <laughs> advice I could give. <laughs> um, Some of your favorite. I, I think maybe I have like three favorites. Great. And one is to be kind to yourself. Mm. And I think while that sounds kind of basic, it's actually a really difficult thing to practice when it comes to sex because of all the myths and misconceptions we're kind of fed about what it means to be desirable and what it means to have sex with other people. I think that, at least for myself, when I was younger, I, like, dove into it without thinking about my own needs because I just wanted to be normal and be cool and fit in and and be liked and be popular, right. which doesn't really allow for self-care. So be kind to yourself and, like, listen to what you want to do and think about who you want to be and why you want to do something. Um, As opposed and, to, you mean, like, just hoping somebody will like you. Yeah, just hoping somebody will like you and trying to get them to like you and doing whatever they want because you want them to like you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really normal thing to do, and I don't judge anybody who acts that way, especially when we're teens and younger. Oh, yeah, of course. Because it's so scary and so hard, and we just want to be liked. It's a very normal human reaction. But I think that it can be great to practice liking ourselves first, right. and the rest kind of will follow. That's one thing in terms of figuring out how to have sex. And then the other is talking to the people that you're going to have sex with, which is also really hard. (laughs) They think that we are nervous about sex collectively as a culture in North America. And so we try to just not talk about it too much because we don't know what to say and we don't have the right words. Um, But the more that we try and talk about what somebody else wants and what we want and what feels good and what feels bad and what we do and don't want to do, I think the better our potential sex lives become right. so that's the second one good one what's the third one yeah uh, the third one is add lube <laughs> <laughs> if you want a practical piece of advice that isn't as like theoretical uh, lubricant is a great addition to any kind of sex you're going to have with yourself or with another person hmm. um, it makes it feel safer I mean it makes it safer because it makes barrier methods less likely to break yeah. it makes micro tears less likely to happen in our bodies um, it makes things be smoother. That's the whole point, and it can feel really good. So lube is a good practical tip. Yeah. I think it's good to add a practical one in there. What a very holistic three steps of advice that that was. <laughs> well, I often just want to give the, like, communicative advice. Yeah, of ones. course. So people well, just want to know the real one. It's all, uh, <laughs> it's all useful and necessary, yeah. kind of, right? Like, there's so many moving parts, no pun intended. <laughs> so right okay i think that's great advice now there's something else i want to ask you about and that's about the blurred lines parody video that you oh, made yeah. so just um, just for our for our listeners just a quick recap blurred lines was the song that robin thick did i guess it was a couple years ago now maybe 2013 and yeah yeah probably. and he had a video where he and a couple other uh guys were fully clothed and they had totally naked ladies in the video kind of just parading around and they I'm sure most people are familiar with this the lines were like you know you want it you know that kind of language is going on and then it created a a great stir and and was kind of like the video that launched a thousand parodies and there was a lot of parody videos made of it but I remember you know I remember watching some of them a lot of them were like feminist responses and um, I remember one particular one that sticks out in my brain that was, I think it was students in Australia and they dressed, it was ladies that dressed in like kind of dom, like boardroom looking, like blazers, like with, but no pants and very spiky heels and like angry, saucy librarian glasses with uh, naked or half naked men anyway, like doing push-ups on the ground and they're like high heels are like digging into their back. And it was a real like purposeful role reversal of the video. Mm-hmm. And you guys did this video called, I think it's called Ask First. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Ask First. First. I almost forgot. And yeah. uh, it's all about um, consent. So he is fabulous, laid on the radio, makes money in the culture by degrading you, but we don't have to take it. Me. 
And I think what struck me so much about that video, your video, was that it wasn't about the restructuring, the, the flipping of a, the power structure, but it was like the, hey, everybody, a lot of people like sex, just ask if you can do this to them, and if they say yes, have a great time. <laughs> Good summary. Thanks. So, tell me, like, how did it come about? Yeah, that was very much a collaborative effort with a couple of friends of mine. And it was me originally who I had heard the song and really liked the song. Yeah. And so wanted to like the video and had heard like some whiff of controversy around the video, but was like, eh, I can probably deal with it. Like I am a feminist, but I, you know, I've been engaging with pop culture for years. I'm used to it. Yeah, like I'll deal course. with it. But then I saw the video and was like, oh, this is actually remarkably bad. It's so easy a parody that I can't not. Right. Um, and my original thought was like, oh, let's just flip the rules. That's easy. And then talking to my good friend Mary, who's in the video with me, the other singer um, and songwriter in our video, was like, no, I don't want to flip the rules. I don't want to live in that world. Like, we don't live in that world, you and I, in our, like, queer bubble in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Why would we do that? And I was like, oh, yeah, good point. Like, I don't. I don't really want to be a bored woman who dominates some <laughs> naked man. And that's not who I am mm-hmm. um, either. And so we thought it would just be a lot more fun and true to our own lives if we talked about having fun sex with each other rather than dominating another person, mm-hmm. which is also like dominance can be fun in a consensual way. Oh, yeah, way. sure. But I I guess we were trying to give a culture of consent message rather than a like, women can be on top two message. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, Sorry, please. No, go. I was just going to say that um, I think that's what's so, was so, uh, what struck me about both the original video and and those those parodies that do the same thing is it's not about sex, it's about power, those, those mm-hmm. videos, right? And your videos are really about sex, for real. It's, it's really about sex. I actually found our video was sexier than Robin's yeah, video. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and more risque in a lot of ways. I like, agree. I was a bit, after we put it in, I was like, oh, this is pretty risque. But it's because me and Mary, who wrote the song, we like sex. Like, we think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I would rather live in a culture that's like, yeah, sex is awesome. Let's talk about it and do it consensually. Yeah. And like, let's abuse other bodies and hurt people, which is so often the messaging around sex. I actually find that watching, like, real expressions of consensual sexuality feels so much more risque because we're so used to watching bland power dynamics in mainstream depictions of sex so when you actually see consensual sex on on tv it's it feels like whoa what am i watching because it's real it's much more real yeah you know i that's you you kind of read my mind because i was going to ask you about the idea of consensual sex in the mainstream is pretty limited it kind of it exists with like the specter of uh of having a like a feminist killjoy attitude around it. Like, make sure you ask mm-hmm. me incredibly, as if that's a kid. But I use killjoy like the word very purposefully because as to describe that it's not fun to ask for some reason. Not mm-hmm. that that's true, but that 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 seems to be how the mainstream kind of a- approaches an idea of consensual sex. Like, it has to be the fun is just zapped right out of it. Weirdly, mm-hmm. why do you think? That it's it's looked at that way. Oh man, I, know, that's I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know either. It's it's a, I it's don't know. a real shame. It is. I think, like in my most recent experience, I'm a part of my job as a sex educator. Is in September, I go with my coworkers at the sex shop I work at um, to because we're an education based sex shop, so we do workshops and. In September, we go to all of the different schools in Atlantic Canada. This year, we went to eight, and we talk about sex for the first-year students. And it is awesome, and I find it really rewarding. But because campus culture has been in the media lately as being so um, unconsensual and rape culture and campuses are unsafe, which is true, I think that it's become a, a thing that um, universities is what I'm talking about now, but also just, like, systems in general, like education systems and healthcare systems. They want to check off consent. like. We taught the youth. It's not our problem anymore. Mm. Um, it's become this weird mandate rather than an actual, like, complicated conversation that we have to have over and over, but rather, like, teach the lesson to youth. We do that once, and then they should know how to practice consent. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's less fun because it's this mandated thing. It's kind of like teaching about fallopian tubes and condoms yeah. now. 
um, which isn't fun. Like, youth don't, I, I mean, when I was a youth in high school, it's not like I learned about the condom and thought, oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. And so I do think that, like, the current approach to talking about consent is a little bit dangerous because it's more like a rule-based approach rather than, like, a complicated and nuanced part of being an adult. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. There's nothing less sexy than having your teacher explain something sexual to you. For the most part. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's terrible. It it's always your gym teacher. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't, it's just with the new curriculum in Ontario, for example, where they had oh, yeah. to put in a whole, I mean, that's the way to take away a sense of illicitness about something is to man- mandatedly talk to you in a classroom. You know, totally. Teenagers mm-hmm. love doing things with a told not to do them. People. Yeah, exactly. People. <laughs> People, yeah, all people, myself yeah, so included. That's a, that's a great point. It's kind of zapped all the mandate, a mandated sniff kind of zapped, zapped the fun out of it. Yeah, totally. Right. That's a, yeah. Well, so that's part of it, but I don't know. And then you can have uh, sexy videos about consent. That's and that's the kind of thing that changes people's minds. So maybe, hey, maybe. It's kind yeah, of, yeah. It's kind of I'm into showing the hotness of consent because it is kind of hot. Talking oh, about totally sex is hot. hot. I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really fun. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and I hope you have a great day. Cinnamon Maxine is so many things. Fat, black, queer stripper, burlesque performer, performance artist, porn performer, and sex worker. Lots to say about the importance of representation in porn, burlesque, and other sexual spaces that historically have narrowed down what's considered acceptably sexy to a very specific definition. Cinnamon Maxine also appears in the rad new Peaches video Rub, which you can check out, although be warned that it is very explicit in NSFW. Cinnamon? So you identify as a black, fat, Gender queer femme. Yep. And uh, as part of the work that you do, you're a burlesque performer, a sex worker, and you make porn, among other things. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could just, if we could just start a little bit with the work that you do with porn and if you could just tell me how you got started there. Yeah. Um, I started doing porn because I worked at the Lusty Lady um, and in my early 20s. And a porn shop? It was it was a peep show in San Francisco. It closed a couple of years ago, okay. um, but it was a peep show in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, being in the dressing room, I heard other people doing stuff like that. So I was kind of interested. Um, and I shot my first scene for Crash Pad a long time ago at this point. And then I continued to do more things a little bit at a time. Um, and then I've just continued to do it. I thought I saw that there was like a need for fat, queer, black, them bodies mm-hmm. and so I wanted to represent that and so what really drew you to it what were you like wow you know what that's really for me I, again again like the the need for for fat queer mm-hmm. black femme bodies like um I I just wanted to see I wanted to see more of it and I wanted to represent so I think that's really like what drew me to it and why I continue to do it when you got started, or sorry, before you got started, uh, and you were just kind of a consumer of porn yourself, were you really, was it like a really glaring awareness that that was really missing? Yeah, I mean, I also just feel like um, before before I started getting heavily into like the sex industry, um, I was my parents, I was young, you know, I kind of had to like watch porn on the down low yeah. <laughs> um, but I did you know a lot of the things that I was seeing was especially mainstream porn a lot of like awkward tokenizing fetishization of black women you know mm-hmm. like big booties four ghetto yeah. bitches five you know things like that and you know um no shame to anybody who may, needs to wants to needs to do that to make money there's no, no shame and I'm not trying to throw shame at all right. it's just you know I saw that and I was like, well, that's lovely, but what about just normalized porn that features brown bodies? Mm-hmm. Why does it always have to be a weird fetishization? I'm not really into that. And there also just wasn't a lot of real, like, black queer porn. Like, there just wasn't. It just, I don't know, kind of, it kind of made me reflect on myself and think maybe I'm not just like, black bodies just really are not that attractive to people. I just don't understand what's happening here. 
made me feel kind of bad, I have to say. I was looking at your um, your Tumblr, and you, you write there that even still in the queer porn, queer sex worker, and queer adult work communities where everybody wants to talk about inclusion, fat people and black people are still less included than white, thin people. They're less popular. Um, yep. Can you tell me a little bit about like that, that? Like when you say they're less popular, do you just mean like they're less visible? Yes. I mean, they're less visible. Yeah. Um, I just, they, they are. I just noticed this, you know, um, and I, and I wrote that and I wrote that post with love. It wasn't to tear down the communities I'm a, I'm a part of. It's just, excuse me, what I've seen. Um, there are just, there are still just like m more white, thin bodies, more white and or white, thin bodies than there are fat bodies and bodies of color, um, and disabled bodies as well, mm -hmm. which I would like to see more of. I don't think it's intentional at all. I just, I just think that like people aren't thinking, um, I, and I also think that there is a part of it is that some companies just don't think it's important. Um, they want to do what sells. Some some companies, like I said, don't think it's important. They want to do what sells. Um, they also don't like they don't necessarily find a certain type of body desirable, so they just don't shoot it, which yeah. is not. I don't know. I don't think that's right. I think like just because you don't necessarily find a body attractive doesn't mean that you shouldn't. If you're a producer or a director, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't shoot that person. I don't know. I don't think that's how it should work. You, I think you you mentioned you've been in it for quite a while now, right? Like I think you said eight years is more than that. Yeah, I've been doing porn for at least eight years. Eight I think. Years. Yeah. It, uh, based on all those things you just said about how it was less visible, all kinds of of bodies and representations were less visible in porn. Do you think there is a big difference now in those eight years that you've been in it? Um, I don't necessarily think that there's a, a big difference. I I think that people are trying more, and there are more conversations happening about it which I think is necessary. I think it's a start, but I don't necessarily think that there's a huge difference. I also think that a lot of brown bodies don't feel like they can be included. I feel like there's a lot of brown and fat bodies that don't think that there's space for them. Um, don't know where to go to, to shoot. Don't know who to contact to shoot and ask for support and where they can, what companies they can, they can work for. And people don't, and also I don't think that a lot of producers and directors ask either. I don't think they like make it known that they are trying to seek a more diverse cast. I would, I think, I, I think it needs more work basically is what I'm trying to say. I think, I think there was, I think there's a, still a lot to be desired. You know, and uh... Maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but people think of San Francisco as a pretty accept, like sex positive, accepting place, and also porn industry than other places. And and you wrote to me earlier today, even when you 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 mentioned that part of your how you see yourself in these communities is to, as you put it, politely remind the community <laughs> that while we have made so much progress, progress, there is still so much work to be done, even in cherished queer sex worker fat femme anti-racist pro progressive communities meaning there's still space especially in those places that consider themselves pretty progressive right um and i think that in those spaces it's you know sometimes i think that we often let people off the hook in a way because you know maybe they're a sex worker or maybe because they're an activist or maybe because they do they do anti-racist work that they, that they don't have to continue to do more work and I don't think that that's true. I think, you know, you can't just like let yourself off the hook because now you're fat or because you do fat activism. You can still be a, like, like a sex worker phobic person. You can still be a racist person. I want to see more work in the, in like, in these, in these progressive spaces, because I, I feel like even, even in here in San Francisco, I feel like people get comfortable in the kind of work that they're doing and don't realize that there are ways to um, do that work across many many communities and many, many people, yeah. um, not just one type of marginalized community. Um, I'm not saying that people should focus on everything at once because I don't think that's reality either, no, but I, I am, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that if you're going to choose to do fat activism and if you're a white, if you're a white person doing fat activism, you have to think about like how your impact as a white fat person or a white fat activist is impacting fat people of color. That's too really interesting ideas to hold side by side like there's the, the as you you were mentioning earlier the need for you know fat brown queer bodies just being visible in porn overall and how right. the lack of that but then even in the the so-called progressive community that has those things there is still uh, a place for 
more progression to occur. And it's funny because I think that I've also noticed in some of the activist spaces that I'm part of, some of the most hypocritical people I have met are those who consider themselves activists and are activists. Right, right, exactly. They are, but think that because they've checked one box of being socially aware that they've checked all the boxes and right. they get a free pass sort of. Right. And, and that's kind of sounds like what you're trying to say. And I, and I, I'm, I'm so interested in that, in that, especially about pushing against uh, an obstacle inside of what is supposed to be considered a safe community that you're already in with all of that in mind. Can you tell me something like that's part of your favorite part of your job? Yeah, I love doing things like this. This is really like interviews and talking about it and having just conversations about what's happening is important to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's important because not only does it 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 normalize not I don't want to say normalize because that's not what I mean. It it it, it brings awareness. It brings more of an awareness, especially to an outsider who just sees me as like you know somebody who does porn or like just does sex work there's more to my work that, than just like making porn and, you know, just have seen clients and like editing and things like that. Like I do things like this that are really important to me. And it's really important to me to have these conversations. And especially with, for me, for me, it's important to have these conversations with fat black, brown people um, to let them know that they are special and that they're seen and that their feelings about this are valid. It's, I, I, I just, I, I love doing things like this. It, it's, it's the part of the work that feels validating in a way. Yeah. And perhaps also that those, not just that those people are seen, but that there is a place for them in the work that you do and not just yeah. in a fetishized way. Exactly. Just, that's, I think, yeah, that's cool. Um, so what, what are some of your greatest hopes, you know, for the, for the work <laughs> that you do? What are some of those goals? I would really like to see more um, queer, all brown, all black porn um that's really important to me can you tell me do you have maybe like um a favorite story about a time when you when you were um doing a porn performance or or burlesque or sex work (laughs) any any you can choose from anywhere about something that really made you feel like wow i'm really on the right path Mm, I feel like that's been happening. That's just been happening a lot to me lately. It's kind of exciting. I've been doing this work for a really long time and I feel like um, there have been people who have come along since I've been started, since I've been doing this, who recently started and kind of exploded onto the scene. And um, that's great for them. But I feel like I've been doing this work for a long time, kind of unnoticed. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the last few months, things have kind of like accelerated for me in a really interesting way I'm kind of I definitely seem I definitely feel seen in a way I feel validated I feel like for one the the other real real aspect of that is also that I feel like I can put myself out there more and actually either ask for more money or put my needs out more and like stand up for myself more and say I really would like to work with you you approached me but actually here's a problem with your idea of what you want to do can we can we talk about that whereas before I would probably just have done it because I needed the money or whatever and so what are some of the things that have been coming up that uh, in the past few months as you mentioned that are really going your way um well I just wrote something for coming out like a porn star for Disney's book. Um, and that got published. And then I did an interview earlier this week for the New York post about that. That was really exciting. I'm doing this interview, which is also really exciting. My sister, interestingly enough, just started college um, and wants to do a project on beauty. And like one of the aspects of that, she wants to focus on how beauty affects the sex worker industry, which I think is great. And my sister, I had a really good conversation with her. She said, you know, I don't, I, I know I'm your younger sister and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm really proud of you. And I think that like you, you, you kind of inspire me and it made me, it made me cry, <laughs> you know? And so, and I've been asked to do more performances recently. Um, it's, it's, people are also approaching me a lot more for work, which feels good. I would I would definitely like to get more work, even if I have to get it myself, but it's nice to be approached for work. That is really validating and important to feel desired as a as a as a person in the industry. Okay, well, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Of course. Okay, that's it. We really hope you liked it. Big thanks to all our guests, Andy Villanueva, Kaylee Trace, and Cinnamon Maxine. 
That's Peach's uh, Fuck the Pain Away you heard up top and, and throughout. And now to play us out, we have comedian and songwriter Diana Bailey with a little ditty exploring sex on our period called Period Slow Jam. See you next time, y'all.